You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. A study published this week compared cost efficiency of different healthcare systems around the world. We hear from one of the authors about how the NHS came out near the top. So when the present government are talking about, oh, the value of competition and so-called choice, well, all you have to do is compare America and their results are dismal. But before that, the International Committee of the Red Cross has a mandate under the Geneva Convention to protect the victims of international and internal armed conflict but they're finding that increasingly difficult to do. They are not protected by bulletproof jackets or high-velocity bullets. They are not protected by automatic weapons or armour plating. In armed conflict, health workers risk their lives to help anyone who is sick or wounded. In the studio today, I'm joined by Jeff Lone, who's head of mission for the ICRC. Thanks for talking to us today, Jeff. Thank you. You've got this campaign starting. It's a matter of life and death. Why now? What's what's led to this? Over the years, we've, we've become increasingly concerned that the interference with the delivery of health care to people when they most need it, which is during armed conflict, is one of the major humanitarian challenges that we face. So over the last three years, we've conducted a a survey, an assessment over 16 countries to try to begin to scope out exactly what are the dimensions of of this phenomenon. And it makes for quite disturbing analysis and disturbing results. As I said before, you are mandated by Geneva Convention. But the way in which conflict happens these days with perhaps more non-professional combatants, a different structure to, to insurgents, is that leading to a greater problem for healthcare workers? What we have found is that it is the, it's the lack of rigorous implementation of the rules of war by combatants, be they state armed forces or be they non-state armed forces, that is leading to a very significant interruption in healthcare provision, um, in their interference of the healthcare process, in their uh, denial of allowing staff or patients to meet together in a safe space and where the, the Hospitals and clinics are protected uh, and not taken over by one or other side. And this, mm. these are general trends and they really apply, unfortunately, across the board. Do you think it's a disregard for the rules or an unawareness of, of what those rules say? I think in part not everyone is aware of what the rules say. Not everyone is aware is that when you have a hospital, the hospital is a neutralised zone in an armed conflict. The staff and the patients must be protected. And I'm not sure that that health professionals have received all the necessary training to help them to be able to negotiate with armed men because the negotiation with armed men in the heat of a battle is, mm. a, is a very difficult process. Mm. Um, we'll come on to that in a little bit. But as you said, there. You guys did some research to to quantify this problem. Could you take us through that? Give us some numbers and and perhaps some stories. It's very difficult to give the big figures, but perhaps some of the some of the stories that kind of 
would resonate with with uh, with your listeners and I think with us very strongly. Uh, well, in 2008, the Ministry of Health in Iraq calculated that 18,000 of the 34,000 doctors had left the country. That, that obviously is going to have an enormous impact on the delivery of healthcare service. Um, so you have you have a disruption because of the um, the evacuation, the movement of healthcare personnel. You have a disruption because ill and wounded either can't get to the facilities because of active fighting, or indeed if they are in transit, that transit is often interfered with, such as ambulances. And ambulances have to join in the queues to go through the many checkpoints to get from home homes to hospitals. It's antithetical to the notion of an ambulance that it has to wait in the checkpoint um, when it is a protected space, an ambulance should be allowed to go straight through. How do you stop that kind of process being subverted by one side or the other? In we are as good as our last goal. If, if fighters in a war discover that the Red Cross is being abused by one or other party and that guns would be in an ambulance or that hospitals would be used by snipers um, or that weapons would be stored in clinics, uh, that and all of these have red crosses or red crescents on them, clearly that's going to undermine confidence in the neutrality of what we represent. Mm-hmm. Our only authority is the moral authority and is the, the perception amongst the public and amongst the fighters that actually, if you see the Red Cross, leave it alone. Uh, and every time the Red Cross is interfered with, of course, it creates a perception that perhaps the Red Cross is not as neutral as it says it is. And so we we kind of, take up this challenge at a policy level, at an operational level, with ministries of defence, with, with armies, with renegade commanders, uh, with everybody, and, and, and have a pretty sophisticated way of, of ensuring the protection. But, of course, we can't be everywhere all the time. No, of course not. I mean, if we take Bahrain at the moment as a, as a case in point, um, the government there is has been accused of attacking doctors, arresting them, putting them up for um, court-martial, preventing patients from accessing medical services with the excuse that they believe the doctors are partisan, that they are on the side of the rebels. Doctors are people as well. And, you know, personally, if I was in that situation, I imagine I would have pretty strong views about what the state was doing at that time. How can you ensure their neutrality? Okay, I think in the first instance, the law, the law protects the neutrality of all healthcare staff and guarantees the neutrality and guarantees the protection of healthcare facilities. In order for the law to be respected and applied, there is an obligation on the staff and professionals in healthcare structures to behave consistently with that body of law, which, which mm. means. To some degree, parking one's politics at the door. Um, the moment we put on our hat and become a medical doctor, a health professional, for that matter, an ICRC delegate, in an operational context, it's important that our services, uh, the delivery of our services, our humanitarian work, our medical support, our healthcare support is given to everybody, regardless of which side, which tribe, are they good? Are they not good? We are there to provide a service to everybody. It's not easy. It's not easy because every one of us has our own set of personal values and personal morals. 
but our professional ethical obligations demand of us that we treat people as the victim of armed conflict that they are or the ill person that they are and provide treatment in exactly the same way that we provide treatment according to process of triage and prioritisation and service delivery we would in any hospital or clinic or context in the world. Mm. To ensure the ongoing work of, of the ICRC, you're going to have to get a lot of people on side. You're going to have to change attitudes towards the work of the Red Cross, the neutrality of hospitals, remind people of the, of the law that's in place. How's your campaign going to pan out? Number one is through engaging with the public, engaging in public fora such as this one. A second way is that we will be hosting a series of seminars and workshops around the globe in order to look at various aspects of how this problem is challenging the delivery of services. And we hope that between generating a public debate, having a professional debate with the healthcare professionals and engaging with governments and combatants in armed conflict, that we will be able to generate some some new thinking, some affirmation of existing law and, and a deeper respect for, for practice in the field where it is so badly needed. Mm. Um, I'm just thinking of the advert stating that physically healthcare workers, they don't have body armour, they don't have armed people helping them. Is that something that you're really keen to keep or is that something that might need to change as well? Actually having physical protection in place as well as the protection of law. We don't, as, as ICRC delegates, we don't use physical protection because uh, that would suggest to the combatant that we feel at risk. And by only using the Red Cross and by talking to all the combatants on both sides of the conflict and getting their agreement that where they see the Red Cross or they see the Red Crescent, that they actually protect that. And I think that would be our favourite way of of working, that people come come back to or reaffirm the notion that when you see a Red Cross flag, a Red Cross on top of a hospital outside a, an ambulance, um, that that is respected and those people go about their business safely and without having to fear for their own lives as well as the lives of their patients. Great. Well, Jeff, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. In the BMJ this week, we're carrying an editorial by Vivian Nathanson of the BMA about that campaign. And you can read the report that Jeff mentioned online. Links from the podcast homepage. Now, one of the motivations for change in the NHS is to increase efficiency. But how well do we rate against other countries? A recent study found that the UK actually has the second most efficient health system of 19 economically developed countries. Earlier this week, Anne Gulland, a freelance health journalist for the BMJ, asked Colin Pritchard from Bournemouth University how they compared the systems. So what we did, we said, OK, let's ask a simple model. The good thing about dealing with mortality rates, you've actually got some firm figures which you can compare across time and between countries. They're World Health Organization figures, and they all compile in the same way and assessed in the same way. Mm. Here's the good news. Every Western country has reduced its feasible death rate, that's for people under 74, by at least 28%. The smallest reduction has been, um, I'm afraid, in the United States, Mm. uh, who've only reduced their overall death rates by uh, 27%. Whereas we've reduced our death rates, from from a high, obviously, by 43%. 
And in many ways, all the Western countries can celebrate the achievements of both social policy, uh, affluence and everything else, and, dare we say, yes, broad health care. But it's when you look comparatively. So, for example, um, as a ratio, um, we've been saving 3,951 deaths per million of population compared to the Americans' uh, saving of 2,500. And when it gets to uh, older people, that's the 55 to 74-year-olds, our efficiency and, and savings, we've saved three times the rate of death in, in America. Mm. Yeah. But our death rates are still quite high, aren't they? Well, we're fifth highest out of the 19 uh, countries. Uh, we used to be third highest. Mm. But please remember, Anne, that every country's death rates come down. So we're, we're improving in an improving situation. But what we did, we did a series of chi-squares and said, okay, where did people's death rates start from in 1980 and where have they arrived at now? And what we found is this, that yes, five countries actually did better than the UK. That was Australia, Austria, Italy, New Zealand, and the Netherlands. But we did significantly better than Canada, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Ireland, Norway, Portugal, Spain, Switzerland, and the USA. And the USA had a worse outcome than every other country except Portugal and Spain. So when the present governments are talking about, oh, the value of competition and so-called choice, well, all you have to do is compare America and their results are dismal. Hmm. So do you think that's the main sort of message to policymakers from this paper? That yeah, I would simply say this, that the NHS was conceived on the cheap, is run on the cheap, and achieves proportionally more with significantly less. Compared with other countries, we're still not spending as much as most other countries on our NHS. But that's been a big argument over the past few years, hasn't it, that money's been poured into the NHS? But, but Anne, it's how you talk about this. See, uh, the present government say, oh, we've never given so much to NHS this year as, as ever before, and that's true. But, of course, they then ignore the fact of inflation and, and so forth. And despite the big improvements in relative uh, finance into the NHS in the last five, ten years, that's still below the international average of the uh, 20 major Western countries. Uh, 25 years ago, we used to spend 5.6% uh, of our GDP, and that's a big sum. We now are spending a 93 mm. On the other hand, 20 years ago, the Americans were spending 88 and they're now spending 153 uh, France, 20 years ago, was spending 7%. They're now spending 11%. And whilst we're 12th out of 20 countries of current levels of GDP expenditure, overall the average, we're equal 15th out of 19 countries. Disraeli got it wrong. He says there's lies, damned lies, and statisticians. Mm. There are lies, damned lies, and politicians who misuse statistics. And I blame all political parties for that. And Anne's news story is available online on bmj.com. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week to discuss the mental health of comic book characters. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, 
please visit bmj.com. 